This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Nobody Knew She Was There, a true story of a mother who lost her way. And our author is Andrew Glasgow. And he joins me from near Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Tell me you, the background story of this book. This is a personal account reflective of your family and your mother. Am I understanding the, the premise of your book? That's correct, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's a book that really uh, took its point of departure from the time that my mother became seriously ill with Alzheimer's. And she had she was not born in Canada. Where was your family history? Well, they they were they were all born in Scotland, uh, as I was too. Uh, but uh, they they came here with a mass exodus of people in the sixties, and um, you know they uh, they started a new life here. And I I was very young at the time, so um, you know my homeland is uh, more or less Canada now. What what prompted the mass exodus in the sixties? Uh, what what uh, well, drove that? You know, I'm, I'm just referring to the fact that uh, there were a lot of uh, working people in in Britain who were having a hard time. You know, the economy was not great, and uh, the, the politics were not wonderful either at times. So I think people were just moving away from Scotland in large uh, numbers uh, at the time, and my parents were among them. My my father was. Uh, having trouble uh, getting a job. My brother moved here because he wanted to leave the country, uh, uh, you know, uh, as a young man because he didn't feel there was much uh, hope for someone like himself. So, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, uh, there were really quite a, a large number of people doing this. I have had friends and neighbors who have been impacted by Alzheimer's and dementia uh, issues in their family. How early did your mother, Maggie, show signs of Alzheimer's? Well, you know, this is the interesting part about it. And uh, it's very hard to, uh, for us to say, you know, because uh, when when I think back and, and some of my family thinks back on this, we, we can remember incidents and quite distant past uh, during the time that my mother was in her 50s uh, where she started to do rather odd things you know that seemed to us odd at the time for example she used to uh, uh, wash uh, my mother's my my father's uh, sweaters in the uh, uh, the washing machine and then put them in the dryer uh, now you know nobody ever puts sweaters in the dryer, but she did it. Not only did she do it, you know, but she did it more than once. And each time she did it, they came out like baby sweaters. <laughs> so we used to laugh about it then, and uh, we used to say to her, "Why do you do this?" And she said, "Oh, I forgot." And we didn't think anything of it uh, until years later, when uh, uh, we thought that perhaps, really, it was uh, the first indication that uh, Alzheimer's was beginning to set in. Why did you feel a personal story like yours needed to be shared with the world? Well, because I think it's a, a story of uh, ordinary people, just like so many <laughs> members of uh, your audience are, and so many of the, 
people of the world are just ordinary people uh, whose uh, lives are never celebrated or uh, discussed in the news media very much, uh, and yet uh, their suffering is often just as great as uh, the victims of abuse or victims of war, uh, or the victims of torture that we hear uh, often sensationalized in the press. So, uh, you know, it was the immense suffering uh, that uh, really, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to talk about. And uh, and I thought uh, that, you know, this is not something that's uh, really exceptional to my family. It's something that's universal. And uh, uh, I think uh, many people would be interested in it. Your family, so, um, your your mother and father were were uh, were of the era of World War II. How did that impact yeah. their lives? Well, you know, again, I think this is uh, this is the uh, the um, era when people were uh, subjected to immense suffering. I mean, I think people on both sides of the Atlantic, in the U.S., Canada, and in uh, Britain and Europe. I mean, of course, uh, you know, so many of us have families who have suffered through that time. And, uh, you know, then uh, after the war, they, they had to just uh, take care of themselves. I mean, there weren't uh, psychotherapists and so on uh, around at that time to sort of take care of uh, all the, uh, the horrendous uh, suffering that they endured during the war and uh, try to address the problems that spilled out of it. So, um, you know, they, they had a hard time, and they had a hard time economically, too, just trying to put their lives together after the war. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a generation that um, uh, people of my generation will have uh, had uh, immediate contact with and will know very well in their own family histories. So I think my family history is the family history of a great many people today uh, in many respects, I would say, uh, which is why I think it's relevant. Is there any significance to the story as far as the title of the book that you've given it? Nobody knew she was there. True story of a mother who lost her way. Yeah, well, <clears throat> of course, one of the, the big themes of this, uh, of this book is, uh, is the question of identity and the loss of identity and the fragility of identity, how easily identity can be snatched away from us by the unfortunate circumstances of life. In my mother's case, Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's stole her mind. And uh, I think the uh, the, uh, the book uh, uh, title uh, speaks directly to that uh, loss of identity. Um, and... Uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it was, you know, really the book came out of the fact that when I was in the hospital, going into the hospital every day to see her towards the end of her life, uh, you know, I, I didn't really, uh, I had a terrible time, as a matter of fact, a very tough time trying to remember who she was. Because at that point, she was no longer able to speak to me, no longer able to recognize me. And it was as if she didn't know me. As a matter of fact, a, a few times when I touched her, she had a look of effrontery on her face <laughs> because she, she didn't seem to think that I had any right to touch her, you know, uh, tenderly or, or otherwise. You know, so it was it was a very difficult time for me. And that one that's really when I began to, uh, um, you know, write the book because it was like almost uh, I had to try and piece together who she really was uh, after all this time um, before she had lost the capacity to speak for herself. And how long did it take you to go through that process of writing the book? 
It's very difficult to say because I did it in fits and starts. Um, at the beginning, I, I, I started to write, uh, you know, just down, write down what I was feeling and what I was seeing in the hospital in the last days of her life. Um, and then I put all that together and then I sat on it for a few years. And then I decided after a while to, that I needed more than that to find out really who she was because it occurred to me that I really didn't know my mother. So I went to, uh, you know, speak to my family members and had conversations with them about who she was. And they all gave me a quite a very different, actually, picture of her and uh, and uh, made the whole business uh, really quite intriguing, trying to discover who my mother was. Uh, so it it was it's difficult to say it. It took a few years because... Uh, um, I did that, and then uh, and then I sat on it again for another number of years. So it's been around this manuscript for too long uh, before it was published. But maybe, well, I don't know. I don't want to speculate on why I did that, but uh, it may have had something to do with the, the pain of the whole business because it was a very difficult experience to go through. Because you also share family secrets that you didn't know uh, as you began the process. Precisely. Yes, that's right. And uh, that's, again, one of the key themes of the book is that, you know, when you scratch the surface of your own family life, uh, you begin to discover things that you never knew were there. Um, And, uh, you know, you realize that there have been a lot of myths and stories uh, concocted to cover up the pain and suffering of life. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's sometimes difficult to strip away those myths uh, and stories and uh, get at the truth, um, but uh, that's what I tried to do in the book. You know, it's a, it's a very candid book. It's a very open book. It's a it's a book that I I have to say I found extremely therapeutic to write. It really helped me overcome the grief uh, that I experienced with my mother, and uh, I think in many ways. I mean, it sounds like a tragic story, and it is, but I think in many ways it's a very uplifting story, it's a very positive story, and there's so much to be learned uh, uh, in this experience, uh, profoundly horrifying as it is. In your in your study of, uh, or the, the background search of the true identity of your mama, what surprised you the most? What was the most uplifting part that you discovered? Um, I think that... Uh, uh, the most uplifting part was just discovering, uh, you know, some of the, the really very difficult times that she had as a child, uh, the very tough experience that she went through with her own father, who was really a kind of a drunkard and a very difficult man who uh, subjected his family to all kinds of uh, really twisted relationship and uh, and made the life extremely difficult for them. And uh, I've uncovered a lot of that in the book. I mean, there was actually incest in, in, in my family that, uh, that he was involved in. And, uh, you know, this kind of abuse uh, had a big effect on my mother. And it's remarkable how she weathered it all and remarkable how she managed to rebuild uh, her life afterwards and uh, I find that kind of heroic uh, if I may say so myself absolutely um, and uh, her resilience and tenacity are really quite remarkable strength of the human spirit it's a wonderful yeah, story to, to retell was yeah. there a specific 
incident that you think is going to cause the reader to, to really stand up and take notice when they read your book? You mean positive or negative? Or well, how are you thinking about I, that? I guess the better way to ask that question is, is there an underlying theme that you want the reader to take away from this read? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I think the thing is that the the book itself is is really a book uh, about the identity question uh, more than anything else. Uh, you know, the identity, not only our personal identity, it's just the way we we kind of assume that we know who we are. <laughs> you know, I find that really remarkable now. When you know. Not only, I've, I've been working on this uh, idea of identity for a long time, so this book is uh, is only part of the story there. But uh, but you know the way that we think we know who we are, and the way that we think we know who our families uh, are, you know, and 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 I, I don't think we know as much uh, nearly as we think we do. And when we start to look into our past and the, uh, the, the events that happened in our past and the imprint that they have left on the present, and we start to uh, strip away the veils of uh, respectability and convention that to cover up the past and cover up the mishaps, the nasty events, the, uh, the twisted uh, relationships and the intense passions and all of that, it's amazing. Uh, really what we discover, not only about uh, our families and the family identity, but ourselves, you know, and our relationship with our families. And I think both the family and the uh, individual members of the family, that their identities are interrelated and interlaced in a way that is uh, really amazing and so complex. And it's to me, it's an enigma. And uh, I think the book in many ways, it's really about that enigma. Beautifully put. There are some incidences or things that cross my mind as I think of being a caregiver. We are currently a caregiver for a 90-year-old mother-in-law who is in reasonably good health. She does have some serious health issues. But are there, are there thoughts that cross the caregiver's mind that are out of the ordinary, out of the norm, especially if you see someone in severe pain and suffering? Yes, well, I guess uh, I guess there are, aren't there? I mean, really, uh, I think uh, some people might be shocked by uh, hearing the uh, the author, the narrator, speak of his the madman uh, that lives in the dark cave of his mind, who comes out every while, uh, once in a while, and speaks to him about his mother in ways that are really quite quite uh, terrible and terrifying. I mean, there were times when uh, the madman spoke to me in my mind, uh, telling me that uh, it really was about time that, that I put an end to all of the uh, suffering that she was enduring, because look what it was doing to her. And, uh, it would be easy to, you know, just uh, give her up for dead or, you know, even kill her myself. Uh, of course, I never succumbed to the pressures of the madman, but th- these terrible thoughts do come to you when you see the extent of the suffering that some people have to endure. It's uh, the enormity of that suffering is really quite, well, very difficult uh, to be able to uh, endure. It's a, diff- on a, personal it's a difficult so task. The care- yes. The, yes, the caregiver is, I really, my heart goes out to caregivers now because I think, uh, you know, some of the caregivers that I've seen and some that I saw in the hospital the visits that I used to make to my mother, some of those caregivers really, they, uh, they were remarkable people. 
because they have a lot to endure as well as the victim. Absolutely. I, uh, I can relate on a personal level, and although we're not going through deep crisis, it still is a challenge to sometimes get through the day or the week. Absolutely. This is not an ordinary memoir. What do you think sets it apart from the rest that are out in the marketplace right now? Well, I think, first of all, it's, um, it's really a fusion of memoir, of uh, uh, family oral history, of uh, autobiography, um, but it's written uh, like a novel, with the dramatic uh, flair of a novel, and it's, it's structured almost almost like a movie with flashbacks in it. So, um, you know, I think it's different in those ways, and I think also, you know, the the narrator in the uh, in the book doesn't sit back uh, aloof like a, a, you know a distant author and simply describe things objectively. The narrator is part of the drama of the story because his uh, he was a character. He was a he was a member of the family that he's talking about. So his uh, emotions and his ideas, his thoughts, his observations uh, really become part of the story as well. And uh, so I think in, in those ways it, it is quite different. And uh, also the uh, chapters uh, in the book are, there's uh, present tense chapters about my mother's progress towards her death. And then there are past tense chapters that are interlaced with these chapters that are stories about her past that uh, move backwards, really, towards her birth. Uh, so these two stories are interlaced in such a way that we move towards her death on the one hand and towards her birth on the other. And at the end, her birth and her death are, inter- are interfaced in such a way that they provide a kind of context for each other. So it's kind of interesting because you get the sense of who the person was at birth and the problems she had to face uh, during her childhood uh, interfaced with the the death scene and uh, all the problems around that. So it's kind of interesting, I think, to see them interfaced like that. And and, uh, I think it helps the reader to really understand more of who she was and why what happened to her happened to her. Andrew, I think the way you have structured the book, because it really draws in the reader, it's a conversational dialogue between the characters and the uh, the high-profile individuals that were part of your family, so it's, uh, it's a very intriguing concept, the way you've done this. Were there challenges in getting this to print? Well, the challenges were all in my mind, um, more uh, having to do with my, I guess, uh, you know, experience of the grief, uh, firstly, and then Later, my concern about family members and what they would think, and uh, and then finally my own fear of, I think, uh, just um, telling the story. Uh, I think they had more to do with that than anything else. Because when I took the two parts of the book, the two kinds of chapters that I was telling you about, which were written at different times, and I started to just sort of put them together, they, they fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. It was uncanny. I mean, I, I just, I didn't, I almost didn't have to think about it. It was just as if each of the chapters just fell into place. So in that respect, the book was very easy to do uh, at that final respect. But uh, as I say, there was more of the psychological issues that uh, really prevented it from getting into print as, uh, as early as it could have done. Well, as a memoir, it's beautifully done. And the title again is Nobody Knew She Was There, The True Story of a Mother Who Lost Her Way and our author, Andrew Glasgow. Andrew, where can our listeners get copies of your book? 
Well, at the moment, they can get copies uh, from Author House um, at authorhouse.com. Uh, there's a website there for the book, the book, and there's a, there's also uh, you can also get that get the book at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. I'm having a signing at a Chapters Bookstore here in Oakville on April the 26th. And uh, I'm hoping that the chapters is going to um, uh, stock the book uh, subsequent to that. So fabulous! Uh, and hopefully they've got it there. And listeners, you can research and find out uh, the activity of this book by researching, doing a search online for Andrew Glasgow, which is spelled G-L-A-S-C-O-E. Thank you, Andrew, for joining me today. Thank you, Jay, very much for this uh, fine interview. I Thank really you, appreciate sir. Appreciate it for Author House and Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today has a, a rather intriguing and provocative title, Old Spouses Tales About Animals. Myths About Animals, Dispelled, and the True Story Revealed. And our author is James F. Gaines. Now, James, this is an interesting title. Are you an expert in old spouses, or are you an expert in animals? Well, I've had more than one wife. Uh, <laughs> I don't know the, what, what that gets me, though. But I am an expert in animals. I have been in... I graduated from veterinary school back in 1962 and uh, with a doctor of veterinary medicine degree, and then I went back and got well, a master's program in laboratory animal medicine, went into medical research. So I, uh, and then when I retired from the military, I went into private practice, and for, for 16 years I specialized in birds and exotics. Uh, I have held training, a lot of training classes for dogs over the years, and so I have essentially 50 years' experience in veterinary medicine, birds and exotics, medical research, and I have developed a couple of items that are now widely used in humans, uh, both dental and in neurosurgery. Uh, I have broad experience in dog obedience, and I think that I have, and I've traveled the world. I speak two other languages other than English, and so I have the 
background to speak about everything in that book with some degree of authority. Including the old spouses. Uh, including old spouses, yes. <laughs> I, I call it old spouses because there's a lot of these tales that I'm, it used to be old wives' tales, but a lot of these tales that are invented by men. So to be politically correct, at least in that one aspect, I call it old spouses' tales. Good idea. Keeps you out of trouble. You also took care of camels or uh, did uh, vet medicine in Egypt on camels. That's an interesting side yes. uh, side note. I spent three years in Egypt, uh, went over there actually for medical research in infectious disease. But as it happens, the Egyptian army uses, they probably have a thousand camels, and they were having some problems, so uh, they called us in, and we got to looking at them, and the biggest problem is that it was malnutrition. We will get that straightened out. The Egyptian soldiers are, when they're not totally supervised, sometimes they will definitely cut corners, and it was hurting the camels. One of the uh, topics you deal with here in your book is one that I am accosted by one of my neighbors. Uh, they are dog lovers. I like dogs, love them maybe not so much, at least not to the extent that they do. And that is the uh, tale that a dog's mouth is clean. What do you say to that? Well, you can figure a lot of dogs eat their own poop and other dogs' poops. They lick their genitals and their rear end on a pretty regular basis. Mm -hmm. They'll taste almost anything they come across. So dogs' mouths, uh, in reality, are essentially filthy. And if a dog licks you, or any time after you've handled a dog or anything like that, wash your hands. Good idea. Don't let them lick your face. Don't let them lick your face. That it's No, dogs do not have clean mouths. Uh, they're not Dogs do not necessarily transmit diseases on a regular basis. There are very, very few that they do, but don't take the chance. I agree with that. I'm a little bit OCD in the first place, and that sense sets me off, you know, a little bit. Why did you write this book? What inspired you to put all these abstract ideas that have been in the uh, popular folklore into print? Having been in practice for so long, I realized that there was a lot of myths about animals circulating in the real world. And these are propagated by some groups because it suits their political or economic agenda. And then some of them propagated by our peers, our teachers, our parents, and other well-intentioned people who believe they were passing on the truth just because it was a common belief. And I have, I, I have a list of, I think, 40-some tales, which I wrote about, and I've since then I've made up a list of 40 more. And so if this book does well, I will definitely write another one uh, as a sequel to this one, just because there's so much misinformation about animals out there that's propagated by, a lot of it is propagated by professionals. And just because there's, there's a lot of things there, they just don't teach them in veterinary school. And I've been around this, around this profession long enough now that I've looked at many, many different aspects of it. And so I decided to bring some light to it, and I hope that a lot of people take a look at this book and say, huh, I didn't know that. So, yeah, we'll see. There's a lot of uh, our listeners, I'm sure, have seen a dog exercise the um, the enjoyment of scooting along on the rug or the carpet and, I guess, trying to take care of an itch somewhere. What is your, what is your uh, solution for that? Most of those dogs have, have a skin allergy. And that little bear patch... And, and it 
skin allergies in dogs, well, it affects the parts of the body that they can have an effect on. And one of them is that little bear patch around the anal opening. And so what they'll do is they'll scoot across just to scratch that, to relieve the itch. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an inhalant allergy, most likely. And obviously if, if humans ran around with their noses you know, a few inches above the floor all the time, we'd probably have a lot more allergies also. <laughs> but uh, about the only thing you can do on that is do something to relieve the itch. And the best bet is take them into your veterinarian to have them take a look at. But it is not because of the anal sacs. So many times, and I, before I figured this thing out, I used to do the same thing, is that you take a scooting dog in and they won't express the anal sacs. Well, that's not the problem. And so you need to take a look at the at the allergy thing. And if there, you know, somebody has questions on this, uh, they can go into my, you probably find my email someplace, and uh, you know, give me a call. I'll be glad to discuss it with them. And the main thing is, don't name your dog Scooter. Exactly. <laughs> now, <you're, Right. laughs> there has been there has been a a a common thought that tomato juice is a good way to get rid of the uh, the skunk odor if a dog gets sprayed. Is that also incorrect? That is incorrect. That's, once again, that, that is an old spouse's tail uh, personified. And I don't know, I have no idea where it came from. I tried it once on a white English setter that tangled with a skunk, and I had a ended up with a pink English setter that still smelled like a skunk. <laughs> and uh, but the, the, the best the best way to do that is to use a very mild Clorox solution, a tablespoon of Clorox and a couple of squirts of soap and five gallons of water, or you can proportion it out and put it in a tub or a bathtub or something like that, and pour it over the dog, and and Clorox will kill that skunk odor instantly. Anyway, but the whole process is described in the book. But I have used the Clorox thing on, or advise it on several animals and use it on ferrets, which also have quite an odor, and it works like a charm and it is totally harmless. Really? Another item that you you uh, reference in your book is one that's very common with uh, pet parents, that they feed bones to cats and dogs. What is the danger there? Well, there, I, there, there's very little danger to feeding bones to dogs and cats. In fact, all of my dogs and cats get all of the bones we produce, and if weed out, I bring bones home. When I was in my avian exotic practice after I retired from the military, I treated any number of injured wild animals, carnivores mainly, raccoons, foxes, that sort of thing. And one thing you always check is the, is the gums to see whether or not they're in shock and all that sort of stuff. And I noticed that all of these animals had shiny white teeth, and a lot of them had gray on the face, which indicated they were an older animal. And I got thinking about it, and, and my dogs have always had clean, shiny teeth because they've, they've fed bones all the time. And, and dogs, when they eat a bone, they will chew it to powder. I mean, this, and, and I, I hear stories, I've got comments back about different things which are just totally not plausible. But once a bone hits the stomach, it's going to dissolve in a very short time because the, the acid in the stomach is about as strong as battery acid. And it'll dissolve bone real quick. The biggest danger with feeding bones, if you have two or more dogs, usually there's a dominant and then the subordinate ones. The subordinate dogs, many times, well, they will grab a bone and swallow the whole thing just so they get one. Well, and, and every once in a while there's x-rays in the magazines and stuff about the bone in the stomach. 
if that's just left there, it will dissolve. But the thing of it is, if you have two dogs like that, is feed them in separate areas so the subordinate animal can take his time and chew the bone. But one of the major causes of death in old dogs and cats is kidney disease. Nearly old, all dogs, if they don't die from cancer or getting hit by a car or other maladies before they're you know, in their teens or something, they, they will end up with kidney disease. And, and a lot of that comes from the teeth because they get all that calculus, the, the brown stuff you see up next to the gum. It, goes, it gets up underneath the gum, constant shower of bacteria into the body, a lot of which ends up in the kidney and the liver and other organs. But it will eventually cause rather severe kidney damage, whereas all of my dogs, and there's been probably 10 or 12 of them, mainly bird dogs, but they all had plenty of bones, had clean white teeth up well into their teens. Same with my cats, and I've never had a case of kidney disease in my dogs. Amazing. Now, that that's not a heavy-duty scientific investigation, I must agree. But it's probably as good an indication that bones are uh, will, will induce good health as, as anything else on the market. Nobody else has ever done a research study on this either, so that's why I bring that up. Plus, I spent six years in dental research, so I got into this a bit. One thing that you mentioned in your book that is a little controversial to some people is your opinion of pit bulls. They seem to be stamped with the opinion they're very dangerous animals. What is your evaluation of that? There's very little relationship between breed and temperament, a real old spouse's tale. And it's, it's the same way with all the gun violence out here. Most of it is people who are mentally deranged. And I'm not saying that the pit bull owners are mentally deranged, but they buy that dog as a an offshoot of their personality. Mm-hmm. And if you look around the neighborhood, your neighborhood, or your relatives, or whoever, and what you'll see is in a given family, the kids and the dogs will have the same temperament. And the kids, obviously, they get their temperament from the parents. Now, And actually, the same goes for the cats and birds. It's a little harder to recognize. But with pit bulls, the same way. They have the temperament of the owner, number one. Number two, most of those pit bulls that do the attacking are intact. They, are, they, are, they have not been neutered or spayed, and probably the majority right. of them are males. And so if we can start forcing a spay-neuter thing, or you know, economic, we do it through, through economics, and then once again recognize that the personality of that dog is an offshoot of the personality of the owner, and that, that's what they have to look at. But it, it's, not, it's got very little to do with the dog. How would you introduce this book to someone? What would be the uh, key ingredient you'd like to underscore for them? Do you, uh, do you have, a, do, number one, do you own pets? And number two, if no, do you own any animals? Or do you have an interest in animals? And most people say, well, yes. I say, well, listen, there's some fascinating stuff in, uh, stuff in this book. And uh, I think one of the biggest things in there to read about and that I would like to expand on is the fact that Antibiotic resistance in the human population, as it's growing here today, has very little to do with the antibiotics that are used in to, to promote growth in pigs and chickens and that sort of thing. It's because of the the antibiotic dose that anybody is prescribed is for a 154 pound person. I weigh 240. I'm not particularly overweight. I'm six feet tall and I'm good size. I'm bulked up, and but I will get exactly the same antibiotic dosage is my 120-pound wife. Now, there's something wrong there. In veterinary medicine, 
a 40 pound or an 80 pound dog gets twice as much antibiotic as a 40 pound dog. Right. And the same thing needs to start happening in humans. What they're trying, <clears throat> what they're trying to do to, to do now, in limiting antibiotics in animals is that's a political situation. It's a whole lot easier to control and get the pharmaceutical companies to do something that is politically correct than it is to go out here and try and change the prescribing rules for for doctors. And once again, that need to read the book to see to get the whole thing. Yes. What what makes your book different from others in the marketplace dealing with animal care? Most of the ones in animal uh, the books about animal care, n- number one, they will probably allude to a, a single species, and they are, they are all politically correct. They, most of them will not recommend feeding bones to dogs. They talk about you know, doing these night of bones, the different chews and stuff you can get, which none of, none of which work, uh, or taking them in to get the teeth cleaned every six months or a year to the tune of several hundred dollars. And most people just won't do that. So what they need to do is, when when you read these other books, is read mine and then read theirs and see which one will stand the test of time. Because many of these have been written, and not, not that all the other books, everything in it is bad or not true. It's just that they don't have the experience that I have. Now, if, if they're writing about in-depth research, that's been proven and, and published, and then I'm not going to argue with that. But there isn't anything in that book that that, that is of that nature. But the, but most of the books and the, and the stuff I see on online, it's a lot of feel-good stuff about the best breed of puppy and the cutest puppy and the smartest dog and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, don't, uh, I, I just don't agree with it. Well, Dr. Gaines, was there anything that was challenging about getting all of these informational and interesting facts together for this book no it just uh, comes from experience all of it uh, very little of it that i i mean obviously there's a few things i went on there and looked up just to make sure that there hasn't been research on some of this stuff and there hasn't uh and i'm i mean i, I was involved in research for a number of years and i have a number of publications to my credit so i'm into that sort of thing fabulous but, uh no uh it's it's, it's virtually all experience, and I would be glad to debate it with anybody that cares to debate it. The book title again is Old Spouse's Tale About Animals. Myths about animals dispelled and the true story revealed in our author, James F. Gaines, DVM. Dr. Gaines, where can we get copies of your book? Uh, I think all the booksellers have it. I know that Amazon has it, and uh uh, I haven't really looked at the bookstores, but uh, I, I send everybody to Amazon. I know there's other booksellers, and I think they all have it. And then House also has it, and so and you can purchase it online. Fabulous. Thank you for sharing the background story on your book. This is an interesting read, and I'll use the word, it's an interesting tale. Thank you, sir, for joining me. Have a great day. Thank you, sir, for Author Take Talk. Okay. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. 
After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Today we discuss a book and share some information on a new and innovative idea for children. This book is titled Penelope's Imagination Runs Wild. I would call it a fun book because our author is A.J. Fun, spelled with two N's. A.J., welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Jay. You mentioned a technique or an idea called glyphics. And what is a glyphic? Yes, so glyphics is uh, a new uh, new age hieroglyphics. It's a play on, on hieroglyphics, but it's a new age uh, visual puzzle-based language um, that essentially each word in the glyphics language is uh, an image or set of images with some attributes around it uh, that essentially needs to be deciphered in order to reveal a hidden word or a a word um, and uh, put them all together and it creates a a uh, very visual language that uh, needs to be uh, decoded, essentially, before the, the message is understood. I will disclose to my listeners that you are in Canada and in a very cool part of Canada, the northeast in New Brunswick. So I'm assuming you had a lot of time in your hands in the wintertime and like games and puzzles. Is that something that would be correct? <laughs> yeah, that's fair to say. Uh, we certainly had a lot of snow this year. Um, I'm, I'm in New Brunswick, which is the eastern part of Canada, and uh, we definitely uh, were buried this year several times. So between uh, between shoveling and uh, uh, just trying to keep warm, uh, I spent a lot of time uh, on, on glyphics books. This is an imaginative book, an imaginative tale. How did you get interested in putting a book of this type together? What inspired you to write this story? Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm a technology guy, I guess. I've always been working on in the technology space or in the in an automated world, and um, my inspiration came from doing uh, glyphics or or doing a puzzle language with my own children. Uh, so as my daughter and son grew up, um, we used to do treasure hunts with them at Christmas time, for example, and uh, it sort of extended the Christmas experience. But for the last gift at Christmas time. Uh, I would make a uh, uh, one or two scrolls that they would need to decipher in order to find out uh, where another clue is or eventually where their gift is. And um, I did that uh, ever since my children were young, so the idea has been around for a long, long time. 
and we uh, essentially would find ourselves, uh, I would be on Christmas Eve uh, working late into the evening in order to create these scrolls to create the experience for my children. And I thought, wouldn't it be good if I could uh, just type it into the computer and click a generate button and it, and it uh, generated these uh, scrolls instead um, to make it easier. So that's where the idea came from. And uh, just a few years later, I guess, I, I uh, did create that language. And that's the way I create my scrolls for Christmas and birthdays and, and storybooks today. So you are the creator of the actual language now? I am, yeah. I, I did uh, essentially create a dictionary of glyphs. Um, the images uh, uh, come from all over, um, good photographers all over the world, um, that uh, I acquire and assemble and I put them together in, in this puzzle language. Could you describe for our listeners uh, maybe a word or two, because it's very visual the way you've written this book. It's not just typical words. So if you could describe a couple of those that uh, would give them an idea how your imagination works. Certainly. So the images are the core part. So um, it, I essentially, when I'm creating a word, I'll, I'll pick the word forward, for example, uh, because I know I just described that one recently. Um, when I'm putting together the foreword, uh, I will uh, break that up into two syllables, and the four is an easy one to do. I can do the number four, for example, and uh, the word, or W-A-R-D, uh, I count on something close to that in order to achieve it. So I'll, I'll, I'll grab something like a wand, a magic wand, and I put the four and the wand together, and then with a small text manipulation uh, underneath, uh, children need to know how to spell as they're deciphering this. Uh, if you change the N to a an R in the word wand, it allows you to achieve W-A-R-D instead. And with the four in front of it, you get four ward instead of uh, four wand type of thing. And phonetically, um, it reveals sort of the hidden word. So each word that you come up to uh, essentially is a puzzle like that based on multiple images. Fabulous. And on the back of your book, you have the, um, I guess, I would say a decipherable word or phrase, the letter R, the letter U, an up arrow, and a four, and the last of it is IT. So it's R-U up for it. Very creative. There are over 48 pages in your book, and I uh, glanced through it. It would take me a long time to decipher your words and glyphics, but it's a challenge. Who do you think is going to find this an appealing book? Well, uh, you'd be surprised, Jay, at uh, how uh, easily some of the children go through it. So uh, being an author, I've had the fortunate pleasure of being invited around to a few schools that like to bring authors into the schools, and uh, all you need to do is get them started in the book. So the the first of the book starts out with, uh, once upon a time, there was a beautiful girl named Penelope. And if I walk them through the once upon a time, uh, the deciphering, to, to get, sorry, I just dropped my pen. I'll do that again. If I drop, if I walk through the once upon a time uh, in the book, the children will pick up on how that's done and basically know the little tricks and so on in order to be able to break down words in the puzzle. Uh, it's incredible to see how engaged they get. And uh, they essentially start reading from that point on. Uh, I'm, not fluently, but I mean, they come across the puzzle and they uh, tackle it with enthusiasm 
and uh, until they decipher it and they move along quite quite easily. So uh, I find the sweet spot of the book is children grade four, five, and six, um, but uh, it's being used in schools now, and there are children uh, in grade two and three that are also using it, and uh, uh, certainly for some of the older kids or even adults, they are enjoying the puzzles as well. Are they using it in schools as a um, a reward for good behavior or as a, a challenge for their educational uh, process? Yes, yeah, so um, a lot of teachers, it's surprising to me that the uptake has been uh, so much so in the educational space, and uh, uh, a lot of teachers are very interested as they're teaching uh, literacy, uh, grade four, five, and six levels. Uh, they find some of the children are either disengaged, or um, they're having trouble uh, with the reading, or um, maybe it comes too easy for them. And with the introduction of glyphics, it's uh, it's reading plus. It, it adds a very visual look. Um, and it certainly gives the challenge of deciphering or solving the puzzle and uh, has some very good, very positive feedback with uh, uh, upped levels of engagement and uh, uh, also with those that were struggling with reading, find that this is a uh, good method um, to break down the words. It improves their spelling. It improves their uh, uh, overall uh, interest in reading, and it's been a very positive. Uh, feed, it's been very positive feedback for me because of that. Well, what would you like readers to take away from your Glyphics book? Uh, well, I I think that puzzles are essential to uh, logic development and cognitive awareness, um, and they can be fun and engaging. So. Uh, I think that uh, anyone that is uh, willing to give Glyphics a try or uh, moms or dads that are uh, either already reading a lot with their children or uh, are looking to get their children engaged in reading, um, uh, Glyphics provides a, a fun way. And it's also rewarding to the parent to work with their children to see how their logical mind works to break down uh, some of the uh, through the deciphering process, some of the logic to arrive at the answer. I know it was rewarding for me with, with my two children, and honestly, I'm just trying to share this with, with uh, other households, and hopefully they have the same fun that, uh, that we had in ours. Have you had any experience with a child that perhaps has or is dyslexic in reading glyphics? Yeah, I uh, am working with uh, a number of schools and uh, hoping that uh, glyphics becomes part of the curriculum in schools. That's, that would be uh, certainly a dream of mine. And uh, in, through that process, um, um, some children that have either dyslexia or uh, have ADHD, uh, the teachers have been giving me some feedback on the experience they had prior to my arrival or involvement. Uh, because I haven't had much exposure to them and to the reading process and uh, the improvements that they've made. So it has sort of uh, uh, made me dig a little deeper in understanding um, is there an application for glyphics for um, those with either uh, reading disabilities or uh, um, some scenario where, where glyphics could help. I mean, uh, I would love to, to help where I can. Um, but I do need someone with more expertise and, and more study than I do in the field in order to be able to uh, you know, prove some of the theories that we're, we're seeing 
early. Tell us about your main character, Penelope. What does the storyline deal with and her adventures? So Penelope is an adventurous little girl that uh, does a lot of uh, imaginative thinking each night uh, before she uh, goes to bed. And um, this is the first of five books in a series of Penelope's imagination books. Um, In this one, her imagination runs wild. Uh, She essentially uh, thinks early in the book about her being back in the caveman, uh, dancing and singing with cavemen and women. Um, She notices the night sky, and then her imagination takes her uh, out into outer space, and she uh, spends some time with some time with aliens in space, and then uh, uh, there are some things in space that remind her of, uh, of meeting new people and, and being back home and imagining having a, a little brother and so on. So she, her mind sort of wanders from adventure to adventure, and uh, as you read through and and decipher the material and go back and read through the material. Uh, it does reveal a very detailed story of Penelope stepping through these uh, these different adventures before she falls asleep. I would call this a one-of-a-kind children's book. I don't know if you describe it that way, but what sets it apart from other children's books in the marketplace? Yes, certainly the style, uh, it being written in glyphics, I do think it's very unique. I don't think there's anything like it out there on the market. Uh, I'm very, very excited about this book and the prospect of developing you know, more books like it um, where it brings an added value to simple reading and uh, the encoding of the messages um, certainly uh, provides for a very visual story uh, but also makes the book last longer. Uh, it gives a different experience with parents and children. Um, there are just so many aspects of, of the book that uh, uh, I'm quite excited about, about and, I, and I do think that it's, uh, it's unique. So uh, that's exciting as well. What I like about it is that in a very high-tech age when kids are engaged with technology, this is a very practical but also challenging and fun way to learn to read and to discover things about themselves and about uh, the world around them. I I love the the process. Uh, Is there anything about this that was challenging? Um, well, it is my first book, so I can't really uh, compare it to what it would be like writing a, a, a regular book. But I do know with, uh, with this one, the QA process, the quality assurance to make sure that uh, each uh, glyph is properly and accurately capturing the word that I want uh, certainly uh, took a, a long, it was a long process and uh, um, you needed to really uh, dive into the puzzles yourself in order to be able to understand it. Um, because I was sort of the author of the language, uh, I did need to uh, get some other people up to speed uh, from a QA perspective to be able to dive in uh, deep into the deciphering process. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I uh, someone picked up that I had named uh, a baby a she instead of a he, but when you initially glance at a page, you do not know what it says, so uh, that's not an easy pickup. So uh, from my perspective, the QA on a Glyphics book is uh, it's much much higher in the, in the writing process anyway. How long did it take you, AJ, to, to complete this tale? Uh, well, writing the story itself was not hard. I had been sort of I tell my children a different story each night before we go to bed and I sort of make it up on the fly 
so writing the three adventures for Penelope uh, was not a, a difficult process. It was probably a, a couple of days, I guess, I come up with and refine the story. Um, but it took several months to get the uh, imagery to the book uh, just right so that it told the story in the glyphics language. Well, AJ, this is a brand new concept, this glyphics idea. Any other projects or ideas you're working on? Uh, yeah, the the books are one item. So essentially, glyphics, uh, the language of glyphics has been developed. So uh, on my site, there's a translator there that uh, anything you type in English, for example, gets translated on the fly into the glyphics language. So you can actually type your own words and, and see the the uh, encoded visual puzzles that are associated with those words. And with that um, language being developed, <clears throat> we're using it uh, in places like uh, greeting cards, for example. Uh, we're using it uh, um, in, in apps, as I, I guess my most exciting area. Um, essentially, we're going to have some social media type apps or some apps in the stores that leverage glyphics and allow people to chat in a public uh, chat in a uh, um, puzzle language as well. So uh, I'm quite excited for those apps to come out. Hopefully, it just creates more news, um, more awareness of glyphics being out there. And the storybooks are one way to receive it, um, but uh, um, apps and an and online world or greeting cards are other ways to use it as well. That's fabulous. I, I am very uh, excited for you on your behalf, and since you are a fellow Canadian, I can congratulate you all day long. Thank you so much for sharing your information. Thanks. Beautiful job. The title of the book, again, is Penelope's Imagination Runs Wild, and our author, A.J. Fun. A Glyphics original. Thank you, sir, for joining me. Where can our listeners get a copy of your book? Thank you very much, Jay. Uh, listeners can get a copy at glyphics.com, and glyphics is spelled G-L-Y-F-F-I-X.com, uh, or at authorhouse.com. Authorhouse uh, helped me publish the book, and I'm very appreciative to them as well. And other books are in the, in your future? Uh, should be launched shortly, yes. Fabulous. Well, best of luck with this new language, which I, I, I again, find challenging and also uh, very imaginative. Thank you for joining me today, A.J. Thank you so much. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Parker.